Chapter Twenty Four of Gargoyles. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. Gargoyles by Ben Hecht. Chapter Twenty Four. The war was a noisy guest. People shook hands with it. It sat down in their little rooms. Its voice was a brass band that drowned their troubles. Basine found a curious friend in the war. Changes had come to him in the days that followed the scene with Ruth. He grew cold. His heart was indifferent. His victory in the election had sent him to bed without joy. There was no longer an inner Basine and an outer Basine. He had fought his way into the current of events, and he was content to let them move in. They made him senator. They moved him to Washington, provided new scenes for him, new faces. He heard of his sister's collapse without sorrow. She had become crazy, to be expected, of course, to be expected, he said to himself one evening as he sat writing a letter of sympathy to his mother. The thing that had happened to Basine had been the result of a confusion. He found himself at forty robbed of life. Despair, hatred, disgust, these things were left. He turned his back on them. They were a company of emotions too difficult to play with. It was no longer possible to lie. Ruth, Schroeder, Henrietta, love, hope, intrigue grew mixed up. He emerged from himself and walked away from himself, like an aggrieved and dignified guest. He sometimes remembered himself, a distant Basine, a keen-faced one with the feel of leadership in his heart, a mind that was alive behind its words. He had done and thought many things but now he had gone away. He was silent. The day was no longer a challenge. The change carried its reward. It seemed to bring him closer to people. At least he found a certain charm in talking and listening that had not existed before. He gave himself no thought. He was successful, and that was enough. At times he sat in his new quarters in Washington, reading stray items in the newspapers and reciting to himself his achievements. He found pleasing identification in the honors he had achieved. His political friends talked among themselves. They recalled that Basine had once been a man of promise, a man alive with energies. And now he was like the others in the party an amiable fuddy-duddy. They recalled the sensational figure he had made a few years ago in the vice investigation. This seemed to have been the climax of Basine. But the war arrived, and the new senator began to emerge. The country became filled with mediocrities, struggling to utilize the war as a pedestal. The call had gone out for heroes, and the elocutionists rushed forward. The psychology of the day, however, was a bit too involved for these aspirants. The body politic of the nation found itself betrayed by its own platitudes. A moral frenzy began to animate the horizon. 
but it was the frenzy of an idea that had escaped control, an idea grown too huge and luminous to direct any longer. The idealization of itself before which the crowd had worshipped became now a Frankenstein. The virtues of America had gone to war, and the nation looked on, aghast and uncomprehending. The flattering and grandiose image of itself that the bête populaire had been creating in its law books, textbooks, and hymnals had suddenly stepped from its complicated mirror and was marching like a mad hatter to the front. A swarm of guides and interpreters had leaped to its side. They danced around it, chanting its nobilities, proclaiming its grandeur. The spirit of democracy, the rights of man, the one and only God, the golden rule, the thou shalt nots, the seven virtues, the man act, the hatred for all variants of evil, the mythical incarnation of these and kindred illusions, the idealization, was off for the front. The confusion arose when the nation found itself attached, as if by some gruesome umbilical cord to this crazed idealization, off with a tin sword on its shoulder. And it must follow this virtue-snorting monster. It must lie down in trenches in behalf of a fairy tale with which it had been shrewdly deceiving itself for a century. But while the elocutionists fumbling for pedestals were exhorting the nation to hoist itself by its bootstraps, to become overnight a belligerent hierarchy around its god, there were others whose spirit raised an authentic battle shout. One of these was Basine. He appeared to return to himself. The Basine he had walked away from raised itself amid the disgusts and hatreds in which it had lain abandoned. A rage gathered in his voice. Eloquence and flashing eyes were his. The amiable fuddy-duddy playing little politics in Washington became a gentleman of war. The horizon bristled with gentlemen of war, but the terrified crowd casting about for leaders, as the draft shoveled it toward the trenches, eyed them with suspicion. There must be authentic gentlemen of war, men above suspicion. Men maddened with a desire to fight and destroy were wanted. Basine was one of these. His tirades against the enemy left nothing in doubt. They were not concerned with idealisms. The enemy must be destroyed, he began to cry, or else it would destroy civilization. Huns, he cried, vandals and scoundrels, guerrillas, demons, soulless monsters. His phrases drew frightful caricatures of the enemy. His orations were among the few that stirred terror. The Germans were not enemies of an ideal, not a rabble of Nietzsche's at theological grips with a rabble of Christ's. They were Huns, said Basine, barbarians, fiends, hacking children to pieces, pillaging, raping, destroying. This was a language the nation understood. It contained in it the inspiration to heroism and sacrifice. 
Out of it arose the grisly cartoon which awakened fear. Terrified by the possibilities of Hun domination and massacres, the crowd patriotically bared its bosom to the lesser horror. War. It marched forth behind its idiot idealization not to defend that absurdity, but to save itself from the clutches of massacring savages. The energies which came to life abruptly in Basine focused into a strange passion against the Germans. He was vicious, intolerant, unscrupulous in his denunciations. This established him instantly as a leader. The crowd, casting about for leaders, seized upon men more terrified than themselves and upon these abject ones who raved and howled from the pulpit stage and press they heaped rewards and canonizations there was one phase of basine's hatred that offered a curious explanation from the beginning he devoted himself to describing the hideous immorality of the huns he loaned himself passionately to all rumors celebrating the wholesome rape of women committed by the invaders of Belgium. Deportations, well poisonings, child murders figured extensively in his eloquence. But gradually he appeared to concentrate upon what he called the ultimate horror. Fair Europe overrun by this horde of seducers and immoral blackguards. Schroeder was a German. The war rehabilitated Basine. It enabled him to destroy Schroeder. The complicated underworld of hate, disgust, disillusion which his ludicrous renunciation of Ruth and her subsequent betrayal by Schroeder had created in him was the arsenal from which he armed himself for war. He had lapsed into a sterile and amiable Basine in order to escape from emotions become too intolerable and too dangerous to utilize. The murder of Schroeder would not have restored him. The return of the woman he still loved would have been equally futile. Life had become too intolerable for Basine to face and adjust. He had permitted himself convenient burial. On the night he had gotten drunk with the newspaper man, Basine saw himself as he was, a creature misshapen and humorous, and he had buried the vision and fled from it. To sit contemplating an inner self become a grotesque cripple was intolerable. He sought for a brief space to transfer his self-loathing to Schroeder, but Schroeder, the man, was too small to contain it. Schroeder, the war, however, was another matter. Basine unlocked himself, exhumed himself, and came forth with a yell in his throat. The German army was five million Schroders. He hurled himself at them. He was happy in his rage. A sincerity hypnotized him. The Germans were not only five million Schroders. They were also the incarnated nauseas and despairs of Basine. Schroeder, the man, had become for him, illogically but soothingly, the cause of everything that had become misshapen and humorous inside him. Schroeder, the man, was the sand in which Basine, the ostrich, 
buried his head. Now Schroeder, the Germans, Schroeder, the World War, Schroeder, the rape of Belgium, the devastation of France, offered a more hospitable grave for the misshapen and humorous image of himself. To destroy the Germans became for Basine synonymous with destroying the things inside himself from which he had fled helplessly. The destruction of these things consisted of giving them outlet, of giving them voice. His hatreds, despairs, and disillusions arose and spat themselves upon the Germans. The process cleansed and invigorated him and launched him before the public as a leader to be trusted, a hero to venerate during its dark hour. End of chapter 24 Recording by Roger Moline